Welcome to Independent Living Movement Ireland's podcast, Conversations About Activism and Change, where disabled activists talk about their experiences and their views on building a disability rights movement in the 21st century. For our 11th podcast, recorded on the 16th of October 2020, we are joined by Colm Woolley. From my disability point of view, it started back in 1980 when I had a motorcycle accident. I was on my way home from work, 21 at the time. I was working in advertising as a graphic artist and uh, I had a spinal injury and spent I think seven or eight months in the National Rehabilitation Hospital and that was a big big shock. I was 21 I thought I was bulletproof for me up to then disability or anything to do with disability was something that happened to other people certainly wasn't something that I thought was ever going to happen to me. After my rehabilitation of I was very lucky in a way, you know, good family, like a lot of people, good family support, the type of work I did, I was able to do it um, still. I worked at a desk, you know, I wasn't able to get back into the ad agency because it was in um, one of the Georgian buildings in Baggett Street and <laughs> short of them hauling me up the steps and downstairs, it, it wasn't possible. But I was able to work uh, freelance and then I, I, I kind of felt... I was still, I was being very isolated because I was working at home and uh, I went back to college. I went back and studied architectural drafting and engineering drafting. And in some ways, it wasn't about what I was studying. I wanted to, I suppose I wanted to expose myself to people's reaction and, you know, start to deal more with my disability and see how I got on. So, I mean, that was a great experience, you know, as I said. And then after that, I, you know, I never practiced the architecture, the engineering. But it, it, it always helped me when it came up around things to do with access. And then I, I went back to work, you know. So, you know, for a decade or more, disability, other than my own disability, you know, campaigning or anything, was not part of my life back then. In some respects, you, you know, going back to college or going back to employment, life went on for you in some respects. So what was the moment sure. or was there a trigger that you decided as a disabled man who's acquired an impairment, I now want to become active in disability politics or disability activism? I suppose in some ways because I, I was lucky and I was able to go you know back and work and, and involved in mainstream and all that but I ended up back in, in hospital for a couple of months back out in the rehab hospital and I suppose this time it was very different because the first time I was there I was very much focused on me, me coming to terms with it, me uh, learning how to be independent but now I was one of these people that was seeing the new people, the new spinal cord injuries. And, you know, I, you know when you got talking to people, they, they had no expectations. And either did rehabilitation back then. There was no expectations about people returning to work. And I was meeting people coming back for checkups. And, you know, you get chatting to them. And, you know, you were asking them what they were doing. And they were just sitting at home looking out the window. And these were bright, smart people. And, you know, I suppose that was a real shock and that was the start of it. Then I suppose I was asked by an organisation to go and interview. They want, because I was uh, involved in, in art and graphics, they, they wanted to talk to me about maybe putting something together around classes. And I, I wasn't interested in, in, in working with them, but I, I said I'd, I'd go along anyway. I just was, was interested in more what they wanted to do. But I, I was really shocked when I arrived and I was interviewed by a panel of about five people and not one of them 
was somebody with a disability. And I remember at the end of it, they said to me, um, and if you could make one suggestion around how we could do things or do things differently. And I, obviously because I wasn't particularly interested in the job, I felt I could say what I wanted. And I, I, I remember saying, well, you know, it's a real shock for me. I said that nobody here other than myself is uh, somebody with a disability. And I think those two elements, my time back in rehab and that started me to think about, you know, really we're so, so far behind in, in where we should be as people with a disability. And then I started to think about setting up an organization and it spirals from then. It was only supposed to be something short term, I'd get back to work and uh, I was involved with uh, Spinal Injuries Ireland for over 21 years. So could you tell us just a little bit about, because that's a, a seminal moment as a disabled man deciding to set up a disabled person's organisation. Is there particular things that you, uh, in Spinal Injuries Ireland, that work particularly well? Or can you tell us a little bit, probably from the start, what happened and how it grew? And something that you said you were going to give six months of your life, have you had to give 20 years of your life to? Yeah, I, I suppose when I started to get involved, you have to remember this was back in the, the early 90s. And there was a drive and a move towards the independent living. All of a sudden, disabled people were starting to have a voice. You know, so I was hearing stuff. I had very, very little links with anybody else with a disability. Because as I said, I just went back into mainstream. But I was hearing stuff on the radio. I was seeing stuff from the newspapers, you know, and starting to say, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I feel. Like, one of the things that really struck me back then was th there were so many people speaking on our behalf and that really shocked me you know I thought my god all those guys I met out in the National Rehab Hospital they are more than capable of speaking for themselves but yet here we were in the early 90s and other people I would see them you know on the, the six o'clock news talking about the people they were helping or supporting and that really bothered me really really one day my wife turned around to me, Caroline, and said, yeah, stop giving out about it and do something. So um, I approached at the time the matron at the National Rehab Hospital because I had no contacts, I had no access to anybody. And I said, look, I'm looking at the idea of setting up an organization. I was expecting her to say, forget it, it's a mad idea. And instead she said, yeah, go for it. And I said, look, I'm gonna be looking from, for support from you guys because I said, you know, this is all new to me. And, and she said, yeah, absolutely. And they were, they were great. They, they gave us uh, an office space in the hospital, uh, just temporary, you know, we could go in on a certain day and just, it was a point to meet. Um, they threw names at me and I wrote to all these various people and we held a, started a meeting and it just kicked off from there. And then over the next 21 years, we became, the organization became very involved and, I became involved and I was fortunate to link in with people like uh, Martin Nocton, John Doyle, lots of others. I'm not even going to try and remember all the names because I'm really bad with names and I'd leave somebody out. But certainly Martin and John Doyle really touched the chord with me. I, I, I tell the story of when the protests started outside government buildings back around, God, 94, 95, around uh, personal assistance and arriving in and I as I said I knew very few people and I remember the first person to come up to me was John Doyle 
I think he stuck a placard in my hand and uh, introduced me to people. And John, from the start, really impressed me because right from the start, I could see that for John, it was all about the issues. It, it was all about what he could do for other people. It wasn't about him. John, I always felt in some ways stayed a little bit in the background. He, to be honest, when I needed to be educated because I was playing catch up, I'd um, pick up the phone and say, listen, John, you know, I'm hearing this about these issues, this legislation, help me fill me in. And as I said, John was a huge resource over those years right up to unfortunately when he passed away a couple of years ago. I'm delighted you mentioned them because I think uh, certainly when I'd started back in, in CIL even for a very short time he was so generous but so knowledgeable but great company in, in guiding people in around the intricacies of policy and politics and as you say it was about the collective it was about yeah. getting as many people involved as possible so I'm delighted you mentioned him. Colm, in, in terms of Spinal Injuries Ireland, like, I mean, you were the CEO there for a long time and you, you began out in, in Dunleary. How did you find the challenges then? Because obviously we're interacting now through Zoom and I always credit you, by the way, as the, the person who brought Zoom into ILMI all those years ago and we're, we're reaping the benefits of it right now. Uh, and you were you know, always promoting that technology was a way of liberating disabled people, connect them. Well, we'll come to that a little bit later on. But going sure. back then, when you didn't have all those tools at your disposal, how easy was it to connect disabled people to get them in, involved in the work in the organisation? Oh, gosh. I suppose the biggest resort we had at the time was, was how naive we were. I honestly believed within, you know, the next six months, 12 months, we were going to uh, sort out the issues around uh, access to medical cards, you know, other issues. You, you have to remember, when I had my accident in 1980, there wasn't, well, I could never find one. There wasn't a dished footpath. There wasn't an accessible bus. You couldn't get on the trains. Now, look, I know that it's still not ideal, but it was a different world. So I suppose I, I was naive enough to think that, you know, when we got started, we, we would make all these changes. And very quickly, I realised that um, you were pushing against a very entrenched views and it was going to take time. How we... How we reached out to people, I suppose, was one of the early things we did was we, we created a, a newsletter and a magazine and uh, we were able to get access to people's details through the hospital. And we got the magazine out and we started to, you know, reach out to people. And then because we were grounds at a hospital, we had a lot of interaction with the new patients. And uh, surprisingly, and something again, I suppose, because as an individual, with the disability, I was very much focused on how it affected me and somebody with a disability. But very quickly, we realized that most of the engagements we had in the early days were with the family. So all of a sudden, you know, we, we started to realize when you at that time, I think we there was, I don't know, maybe 1200 spinal cord injuries in the country. I remember we, you know, we would say this affects 1200 people. But then when we realized it doesn't just affect the individual with the disability. It has a massive impact on the family. You know, the wife, the husband, the parents, the children. You know, so very quickly we realised that it's not just about the individual, you know, who has the disability. It has a massive impact uh, and a ripple effect on, on a whole family. 
you know, so over the over the years, we, we developed a relationship with the hospital at first, you know, if I'm honest and unfair to the hospital, there would have been people who were wary because they would have seen us as just a couple of people with a disability. And what did we know? But, you know, over time, people started to recognize that because we were the people that were living with it, that we brought certain expertise. We, we were never claiming that we brought a clinical expertise, but we could certainly talk and empathize about what it was like to deal and live with a disability on a daily basis. So, as I said, it took time, a lot longer than I thought. And that's why, as I said, I was there 21 years. We thought we were going to be able to change laws and legislation. I mean, very early on, we were very lucky. We were setting up a community employment scheme and we discovered if somebody was on invalidity pension, they weren't allowed to take part in community employment schemes. And we thought this was outrageous. You know, you know, here, here was a, you know, a scheme, a community employment scheme, which was supposed to be helping people to get back out there. So we, we challenged it and we actually got it changed, you know, and we were able to take people on who were on invalidity pension. Again, I think that in some ways, it was a, a good victory, but it made us almost cocky that we thought, oh, listen, all the other issues are going to be that much, but they weren't. Like we ploughed for years to get the medical card available, not tied into income as it was then. I know there's certainly been improvements, but it was a huge barrier to people taking up employment or going back to college. They were afraid of losing their medical card. And I know it's still, it's still an issue for a lot of people. And from your journey in Final Injuries Ireland, you've still obviously taken a, a keen interest in disability politics and disability sure. rights, but also in, in your role as a coach. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the coaching and what it has revealed to you in some aspects of your work around whether you, you spoke there in your early days in rehabilitation about the expectations have been very low. From your professional experience, are the expectations for disabled people themselves, are they going up? Are the expectations of the professionals, have those changed? Have the expectations of family members changed? Uh, if so, uh, how have they changed and what work, more work do we need to do as a collective around raising those expectations? Well, first of all, I think there's still a huge amount of work to be done. Have expectations changed? Absolutely. You know, for example, for years, we were trying to get a vocational programme out in the National Rehabilitation Hospital. And... The consensus back then was, listen, people are just focusing on coming to terms with, with their spinal cord injury. They don't, don't want to start talking about going back to work or college. And I, I was involved in setting up an organisation in Europe called ESCAF, which was a spinal injuries organisation for Europe. And I remember meeting um, people from Switzerland and in their rehab centre, they had a vocational programme. And they, they thought it was madness that you would let people just go home without enabling and supporting them some way to prepare for going back to work. And when I saw the figures, the percentage of people that were returning to work in Switzerland, it was up in the 80s, whereas we were down in the 20s. You know, it, it was crazy. So we, you know, came back very kindly. The Swiss translated their vocational program into English and we tweaked it around and we, we eventually got the the National Rehab Hospital to put a vocational program in, in place in partnership with us. And that was a huge change. So, I mean, attitudes and expectations are changing, but I still, you know, and when I look back to the nineties, I, I had this expectation that 
by now, you know, disabled people would be leading the way, would be setting the agenda, uh, far more people would be employed, but we still have a long way to go. I think also it depends on the particular uh, sectors. You know, for example, some people now who say for spinal cord injury, um, there are more resources for them now than there was back when I had my accident. But in the general disabled population, I still think we've a long way to go. You know, and, and if I think back to some coaching I've done with people, disabled people, I've been shocked with the uh, low expectations, not just by the individual, but as worryingly if they were young by their parents. Uh, and to be honest, in a lot of cases, I blame some of the organizations that are supposed to be supporting. We need to, we need to be creating expectations and, and resourcing people because there's no reason now in 2020 or coming into 2021 that a disabled person cannot go back out into the community with the right supports. But we, we still haven't come as far as I thought back in the 90s when I first, you know, chatted to John Doyle and Martin and all that. You know, there were huge changes and improvements made in the early 90s. There was a momentum. There was a real sense of disabled people were taking ownership. But we've lost ground. And, and as I said, when I'm coaching people, if I can just jump a little, I went in and worked for a, a charity, a British charity asked me to go over to Nepal and do some work over there, do some coaching and whatever. And a term I realised when I was over there was a reference point. When, when I met the you know, patients in the rehab hospital and you know, they, they wanted to know about what I did back in Ireland, you know, and like we're so far ahead because of, you know, we're a far wealthier country than they are. But I realised that just by hearing what was possible in Ireland, it gave them a reference point. I always remember I gave a talk and before I started, a young girl put her hand and said, I have two goals. And I said, oh, go on, let everybody know. And she said, I I'm going to get a job. I'm going to go to college and get a, a job. So first said, I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to get a job. And everybody was, you know, saying well done. And, but the expectations weren't huge because, as I said, people with disability over there are probably where we were, gosh, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. And I gave my talk and during my talk, because they wanted to know about me and what I did and a little about myself. And I mentioned that I was married. And afterwards, that, that young girl came up to me and said, I now have three goals. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go back to work and I'm going to get married. She said, I didn't think it was possible for somebody with a spinal cord injury to get married. So it made me realise that the importance of, I suppose, in some ways, role models, but reference points and, and letting people know. I still think there's a huge amount of people out there, disabled people, that really don't know or, or don't, don't have the support and the, the, as I said, the resources to, to, to help them to become active members of their communities. So I, st I, I think we've a long way to go. I really do. Well, I'm given your involvement over the years, like you've got, I, I know we've chatted a long, long time about lots sure. of different things and you've got huge course, insights yeah. into that. So let's say that you were given control of budgets or control of direction of policy in an ideal world. 
and you're talking about that journey that it's gone so far, but it's still got a long way to go. Where would you prioritise? What would you say? Look, at these. this is where I think, you know, the, the state needs to be investing in or resourcing. I, I think we need to, to look at how we can resource disabled people more directly and, and seriously look at how we can support them to become active. And, you know, here we are talking on Zoom. I, I remember, you know, years ago, you know, when people talked about maybe disabled people working at home, th there was a huge resistance and understandably because it was felt that, you know, we, we want to get people out into the community. But we have to recognise for some people that's never going to be possible. They maybe live in a very rural area or other elements in, in their life. But this pandemic that we're all living through now has changed attitudes. You know, people are working at home. The term working at home, using Zoom and using, you know, Skype and all that, it's now become a daily resource for the whole community, not, not just something that is was special or that disabled people would do. It's, it's now something that the general public are using. So I think there's a huge opportunity for disabled people to get more opportunities in, in employment. But how do, we, how do we do that? How do we, do we support them? I think we need to, I really think we need to sit down and look at how, what, what, what we're doing wrong. There's massive money going into this sector, massive. But we have to ask what impact is it having? What duplication is, is there? Because the reality is the, the numbers of disabled people working, it's not going up massively. The numbers of disabled people who are actively involved and setting the agenda, we're, we've, we've lost ground there. We lost, if we think over the last couple of years, we lost, you know, Martin Octon, Joe T. Mooney, uh, Eugene Callan, John Doyle, uh, and, and others uh, as well. And I, in some ways, I feel since then that that was a massive shock. We, we lost all those people within, what, maybe two, three years. And it was a massive shock to, to a lot of people. And I just think we've lost momentum. I think we've, we've, I think the whole movement has stagnated. I don't think that, I think we have to find a way that disabled people speak with one voice. You know, one of the things I realised way back, I remember the, 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 at the time there was a, a Minister for Disability, Mary Wallace at the time, and uh, sitting out in the, the waiting area, we, we were going in to talk about, I think it was access or whatever it was at the time. We felt that we had all the answers and we knew exactly what we wanted. She had a meeting with another organisation and when they finished the meeting, they came out and we were chatting to them out in the reception. And we said, well, you were talking to the minister about it. And they said, oh, we were in there talking about access and, you know, issues around. And I remember thinking, my God, here's two different organisations. We're both going in and talking about the same issue. And I thought, what a waste of time, you know, that, that, that there was no coordination. And, and I still think that that's a problem. You know, like, you know, if we look at the, the, the key issues, you know, we can all rattle them off very quickly, you know employment, personal assistance, access to transport, access to medical card, good health care, whatever, education, access to education. There's a common thread that runs through all of these issues. So we need to find a way. I mean, while I'm talking to you, just open my, my shoulder here, I'm looking at 
a document called a strategy for equality that would be one of the things that I would feel very proud to have been involved in. That, that was back in the early 90s. That was supposed to be the template. If you can get your hands on a copy of it and go through it, it still stands today. But, you know, that was a, you know, a number of recommendations that were supposed to set the agenda, but it hasn't happened. And the only way it's going to happen, I mean, you asked me, what should we do? We need to find a way. And, you know, I know I'm talking to yourself, but we need a catalyst. We need a single organisation, a disabled people's organisation, that everybody will come together and, and work together and, and trust each other. Because if someone was to ask me whose fault is this, why have we not made more progress? I think we have to look at ourselves. I think we have to you know, be very honest and say, really, we, we, we've never, never, the broader disability community, in my opinion, we've never really worked together. And we need to find a way of, of working together, whether that's through ILMI or, you know, or, or whatever. But we need to come together with one voice because I see loads of people going off and doing their own thing and they're putting a huge amount of energy into it. And it's great. And I remember John Doyle got myself and a number of uh, people, including Martin Nocton, Eugene Callan, Shelley Gaynor was there and, and, and John Doyle himself. And we were meeting various ministers. But we, we, were, we were a small group. We should have a power that we don't have. If we look at the Marge Equality uh, campaign a couple of years ago, if we look how effective that was, we, we need, they didn't win that because they themselves just fought for what they wanted. They got the support of the community. They educated the community to what was wrong, you know, and people voted for change because they felt this was wrong. We still haven't got, the general public are still very naive about what we need to do for disabled people. So, I mean, what do we need to do? We need to educate the, the general public. We need to empower disabled people under one, one voice. And I know it's been tried, <laughs> it's been tried numerous times, but until we do that, we're leaving ourselves where service providers are speaking on our behalf. And that's not gonna change. In some ways, I think we've gone back from where we were in the early 90s, you know, we don't have the same presence. There isn't a sense when a budget's coming out now. I remember when the budget was coming out in the late 90s and you'd, you'd wait to, to get the budget. There would be a whole section on disability issues. You know, disability, now it's a little piece in the corner, you know, or an afterthought. So we have lost ground. And you mentioned there about you know, marriage equality and how effective it was in changing Irish society, not just for uh, changing the landscape for people who wanted the right to marry, but broadening Irish society's viewpoint on equality. And, and I think it's a, you know, it's a really valid point that that needs to be broadened even further to think around disability equality. What core messages or message would you say, uh, if it's ILMI and we're trying to bring people along on this journey, I'm going to ask you two questions. So the, the, to the general public, what kind of message do you think we should lead on to bring around that kind of consciousness peace that we need in society? We need the broad general community to start to say, gosh, yes, disabled people should be speaking on, on behalf of themselves. Yes, they should be the ones uh, representing disabled people. Yes, they should be the people setting the agenda. 
if we can get the general community out there, you know, the taxi driver, the, the person working in a store, the people working in offices, we need to educate them. There's still a perception. You know, I had my accident 40 years ago and you still come across people that have a, a very uh, narrow view of the capability of disabled people. And, and it shocks me. And as I said, when I did some coaching with some disabled people, I was shocked at how low their expectations, but I was even more shocked at the organization that was supporting them, how low their expectations for them were and their family. And that's down to us changing the message out there. You know, we there's no reason with resources. I mean, again, we're talking about Zoom. There's so many people now working at home. There's no reason why an awful lot more disabled people couldn't be war working at home or out when we we finally come through this pandemic back out in the community. So, but we need the general public to start to say, to question, to say, hold on, yes, we, we, we wouldn't accept, you know, a, whatever it is, people talking on behalf of a particular group, but yet we still accept that other people speak on behalf of disabled people. Why aren't the disabled people the people setting the agenda. And you know, and I know it's, it's, uh, it's not a popular view, but you know my, my views on, on the, uh, the, the, the term, nothing about us without us, and I, I know I get into the trouble for, for this. When that first was started to be used back in the 90s, I thought it was very powerful. But for me now, I always get this vision when it says nothing about us. It's saying about when you are setting an agenda, we want you to include us. Well, what I'm saying is we need to be the ones setting the agenda, not, not saying nothing about us. So when you're doing something, we want you to include us. I'm saying we need to be resourced. We need to find a way that we resource disabled people to be setting the agenda and, and driving th things forward. And that to me is, is, can I give you a solution on how we do that? Gosh, people have been trying for, for decades Disabled people need to start trusting each other. There needs to be an honest discussion to say, we have tried before, we need to stop being in our own little silos. As long as we continue to be fragmented and isolated, we are never gonna make the changes we want to. And that means that people are gonna to have to bite the bullet a little. They're gonna to have to trust because I think there's still, you know, I, I'm not going to say mistrust, but we, earlier on we, we, we said there's probably five issues, you know, housing, transport, education, personal assistance, home, whatever it is. We can all agree on that and come up with what are the, the, the common issues. Then what we need to do is put a framework of what, around each of those. Exactly what do we want? Not vague, specifics, costings, and then ah large voice of people with a disability needs to drive that forward. We need the government to sit up and go, oh, if I can, and I know I'm jumping back and forth because, you know, I'm just trying to remember things. I always remember one of the days that John Doyle asked me to go into government buildings with Martin Ockton and a few others. And I remember when we arrived in to the building and obviously Martin Ockton is very well known, but I was amazed all the various politicians uh, they were short of coming over with their phones to take selfies with Martin or whatever. And they were all coming over and it was, you know, oh, what are you in for? And, you know, 
patting people on the shoulder and saying, oh, you're doing great work and whatever. And that bothered me because we need to reach a point where when politicians see us, they're not rushing over for a selfie and a little bit of a chat. We need them to go, oh God, here's this crowd in who are driving and pushing this. We're going to have to make these changes. We've only to think back to, what is it? It's probably a decade ago when there was changes brought in to the medical card for old age pensioners. They took to the streets and they changed things. You only have to go back to when Martin and others took to the streets back in the early 90s around PAs. There were changes. You know, like I so often see, not now at the moment with the pandemic, but you'll see somebody saying, right, we need to get some banners and placards and we need to take to the street. And it's a small little thing. A politician might come out and listen to people and it fizzles out. That way won't work anymore. We need a very large collective and a very large voice under one banner, not half a dozen, where we say these are the five issues that we need addressed and it needs to be disabled people driving that forward. And until that happens, we're always going to be, well, some people with a, dis with a disability are going to be second class citizens. Colm, is, is there one message in terms of how disabled people are viewed that you'd really like to challenge in this podcast? Oh, gosh, we, we need to move away from. And again, when, when I was privileged to, to sit outside government buildings with, with, with Martin and John and others back in the early 90s, I thought we would have reached this stage. We, we were talking back then, or they were, and I was being educated, that we need to be the ones setting the agenda. I've mentioned this already. We still have an industry, and I'm using the term industry, that, you know, I hear we need X more million every year. We need X more million. We're still, the message we're still getting out there. It's like there's two messages. One, on, there's a message, oh, disabled people can do far more. But as loud, and if not louder, is the message that not that we need to be pitied, but we need to be looked after and we need to be supported. Now, we all know that there are people whose disability is far more challenging than mine and they do need extra support. Absolutely. But that support needs to be such that they have a say over what way they manage those the funds or whatever, instead of large organisations setting it. And I, I still think that, again, that there's an industry out there. And, and do you know something? Again, I was naive enough when I got involved. And it was one of the key things when, when we set up Spinal Injuries Ireland was that it was a DPO. That was a key issue, that we were going to be the people speaking. You know, at the time, we, we were the only organisation I knew where everybody on the board had a disability. Everybody who worked in the organisation. Now that changed little over the years because we brought in expertise, and, and which is what we should have done. But... I, at this stage, thought that in, in 2000, 2020, I thought we would now have reached the point where we were setting the agenda. Instead, we have lost ground. When I say we, I mean disabled people have lost ground and the industry has become stronger and more vocal and they're setting the agenda. I mean, when was the, you know, I'm trying to think the last time uh, an organisation, other than I and my has actually asked me, what are the issues affecting me and what do I want? So am I blaming these organisations? No, I'm going back to what I said early on. I'm blaming us. We've allowed it to happen and we need 
to take control back. We need to be the ones setting the agenda. We need to be the ones saying what needs to be done, not an industry that is worth X amount of billions. I, I remember looking at a figure and being shocked, you know, and I remember seeing, you know, somebody saying, and we employ X amount of people uh, within this, this sector. And I thought, that was never what it was about. It was never about creating employment for whoever. It was about solving and, and changing the, the barriers. But instead, it's become an industry that now says we employ X amount of people. Well, I wonder how many of those people are actually disabled people. And again, that isn't going to change because it's a very powerful and strong lobbying group. And that's who the government listen to. That's who they pick up the phone to when they want to, to see and get an opinion. And until disabled people come together and say, hold on, if we got our act together on that, it's not a huge ask because the general public are very ignorant. I, I know I'm always, w w the amount of times I got taxis, it's great when you get into a taxi, you get, a, you get, you know, they ask you about yourself, whatever. But the amount of times that they've asked me stuff or I've said, you know, told them stuff and they go, oh God, I never knew that. Oh, wow. The general public do not know the real issues affecting us. They do not know how disabled people feel. And until we get that message out there, because if we can turn that, all of a sudden the community, the general public will say, they're absolutely right. They are the people that should be setting the agenda. And they're also the parents of young people who have a disability coming up. And they're saying, absolutely. I want my Tom or my Mary to be the ones that are setting the agenda, not a large organisation uh, speaking on their behalf. Do I think it'll happen overnight? Absolutely not. Do I think it's possible? Absolutely. And it goes back to what I said again earlier. If we can come together as one collective, and again, I know I'm talking to you and it's I and my, whatever the banner, there needs to be a focal point. We need to trust each other and we need to say we need to be the ones setting the agenda and deciding what we want, not large organisations, which is an industry. It needs to be challenged. And that may not be a popular view, but now that I'm 60, I really don't care. I feel that we've reached the stage that we, if we disabled people in Ireland don't get our act together, we're just going to become a commodity for generating an income for an industry. And we're not going to have the PARs and the services that people need going into the future. End of my rant. It's very powerful, Colm. I, I know you've given a lot of time and a huge amount of insight. Uh, I'm just going to be very cheeky and, and try to squeeze two questions in, if that's okay with you. Sure. So the first one relates to that, the relationship building, the trust. You've spoken about Zoom. You've spoken about technology. Do you think in the past it was more difficult maybe to connect people because we'd all the geographic and transport barriers and the inaccessible built environment and lack of PA hours to physically get people from the length and the breadth of the country together. Do you think Zoom gives us that potential to maybe create that community sense, that shared identity that is needed to build a movement? Do you think there's the potential to do it that way? Absolutely. But what I would say is, and I, I remember some years ago, John Doyle, again, like, you know, John Doyle was a constant. Uh, he asked me to go something down in, in Athlone. There was, there was a new organization being set up. Uh, what the hell is the name? I can't remember. They, they have an Irish name. They're involved in PA services. But 
the amount of people that had traveled all around from all around the country to that place in Athlone, you know, the amount of disabled people there on that day, I was amazed. So while for a lot of people, there are access issues and resources for them to get to, to meetings. And to be honest, it makes it very difficult, particularly in a cold day in October, or November. So I, I, I absolutely think something like Zoom is a huge resource. But I think in order to get people who want to engage and use Zoom, we have to give them a reason. We have to give them something that makes them sit up and say, I want to be part of that. Now, being part of it might just mean that, uh, and I know it's not a numbers game, but it might just mean that they say, I want to be part of this collective. Whether that's, and I, I'm, I'm using the term organisation, wh whatever. But if we can get people on various levels to come together like that, and I think Zoom is a great way to get the, the guy who's living in a very rural area, or he, I mean, he could, be, he could be living in a city, but he doesn't have the transport you know, or the PARs to, to go to a meeting. So I think social media, I think Zoom, th there's resources we have now that if Martin Nocton and the others had those back in the 90s, imagine what they would have achieved. You know, the, the, there might have been a few less nights sleeping outside uh, government buildings and sleeping bags and cold nights because social media, it there's a huge opportunity to, to reach out to people and more importantly, to get a message out but it needs to be clear sharp message if it's vague and wanders all over the place people have an attention span now of a goldfish we need something that says disabled people now need to be the people setting their own agenda and deciding what they want and to do that we need to resource them. That's fantastic. Colin, one last piece. You and I have spoken many times about obviously the collective work, but also the individual one-to-one -one pieces that can unlock the potential that is there in everyone. You know, and you mentioned about the reference points. If, if you wouldn't mind expanding about that a little bit, because I know it relates to something you're very passionate about and it's something you've done as a professional quite a bit is you know, getting those reference points to shift for young disabled people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's something in a podcast people would be interested to think about because sure. at different points in their journey, I'm sure their reference points have shifted. And maybe that as a movement, we need to think about how we can resource that kind of approach, you know, scaling that approach up that for the, the younger disabled people who, who don't have those expectations, that there are ways of, of, of doing that in a very peer-led way, led by disabled people. Sure, I suppose talking from the perspective of somebody who, you know, now coaches people, both able-bodied and disabled people, coaching isn't about coming up, with, it's not about me or another coach coming up with solutions. It's about, you know, challenging people to think and, and, and asking them the questions because people, people are amazing. Once you start to create a little bit of momentum and belief and get people to start to say, well, why can't I do that? There's no reason why I can't do that. You know, and I know that a term that isn't always liked within the disability community is people who inspire people. Because I know there's this, there's some, sometimes it can be very silly. But again, I thought, you know, I've mentioned him constantly throughout this discussion. John Doyle, John Doyle for me, inspired me. Martin Nocton inspired me. I'm not saying we need to, to particularly have central individuals do, who are the ones who have to inspire people but 
we have a history and we need to let the, the next generation know, you know, what has been achieved because we've, we've a huge way to go, but there has been massive changes. You know, like when I think back to when I had my accident, my God, the way uh, general public's attitude to a disabled person was shocking. And so it was the dark ages compared to where we are now, but we still have a long, long way to go. So if we can find a way of working with, with young people or not so young people, people who've never got the opportunity and develop a resource where we empower people and just give them the space to believe that they can do something, not that they have to look to a Martin Nocton or a John Doyle, that they can say, hold on, I can be part of that. It won't happen overnight. We're not going to create the next Martin Nocton or the next John Doyle or the next Shelley or whoever it is overnight. But if we can put something in place where we, I suppose, give people a, a platform and a form and a safe place for them to ask questions, but also ask questions about themselves, you know, and challenge their limiting beliefs because, you know, in the best people in the world, you know, whether you have a disability or not, like for example, I, I know looking at, at research, they found that when somebody loses their job, for example, forget about somebody with a disability, within six months of them sitting at home, their confidence is shattered, their self-belief is gone. Now, you multiply that by the years that people, disabled people have been isolated at home, maybe no contact with, with another disabled person who's out there doing stuff. Because one of the things we found with spinal injuries, when we would write in our magazine about somebody that was, you know, back working on their farm or had gone back to the factory they'd worked in or had now gone back to college, it was a reference point. When I had my accident, a, a, a nun gave me a book from America. She'd been over in America and it was about people with a spinal injury back in America who'd done amazing things. And I always remember there was a guy in it who had gone kayaking and his level of injury was higher than mine. And I remember thinking, hold on, if he can do that, why can't I do it? And years later, I took up kayaking simply because of that piece in that book. So what I'm saying is, if we can create a space, I think, and it's not rocket science, I think very quickly and very, not easily, but you can change people's perspective on themselves and what is possible. We all know the very vocal disabled people out there that are very confident. You know, we've seen them on TV, we've heard them on the radio, we've heard them doing some of these podcasts, but they're the exception rather than the rule. And we need to, we need to expand that. And, you know, we need to come up with a way, develop a program or something where, as you mentioned earlier, peer support, you know, where, where we, we support people, we give them reference points, we challenge them, we give them the resources, but we also give them the platform to put in place what they learn. There's no point uh, all of a sudden creating a load of people who are passionate about the issues and then saying, listen, there's your little certificate. Go off, put that on the wall. Listen, really enjoyed working with you. If we have a focus, and again, I'm, I'm you know, not just because I'm talking to you, but, you know, I, I keep thinking of ILMI. If, if that becomes the place where people can feel part of the movement, if that becomes their, their part of, as in, I am now part of ILMI, you know, well, um, what do you want to do? And they don't, they don't go off on a tangent, you know, about 
well, you know, we, we need a dish footpath down in the main street in, in, in Arklow or wherever it is. They, they, they understand what the key issues are that everybody is now talking about, the five or six issues that we talked about earlier. That gives us a huge voice. And it also gives people a sense that they're part of something. And it's amazing. I, I've seen it. If you give people a little bit of hope and self-belief and they feel part of something, that they're now part of a movement, that that they can make a difference. And as I said, even if it's just by being there, by being, and I don't want to say just a number, but they're one of the people there and they're supporting other people who are maybe more vocal or more confident. You, you can, I think very quickly, we can create a movement. The mistake I think we made before was we had some very powerful, when I say powerful, dynamic people. Again, the Martin Nocton's, the Eugene Callens, whoever else it was, but we, we need to not depend on individuals. It needs to be the movement. It needs to be their voice. If it becomes about individuals, we're, we're losing. We can certainly have people who are more confident to voice what the issues are, that absolutely. But everybody feels needs to feel that they're part of it. And I think if we put something in place, I think we can educate, train, coach, whatever term you want to use, a lot of young people. And because I know so, talking to you, you were amazed when you started to, to link and reach out to people, that there were an awful lot of people keen to get involved, but they need something to get involved with. It's not enough for, you know, to get, well, to get involved in what? Well, here's the five issues, you know, here's the campaign. That's what drives it forward. You know, there needs to be, there needs to be a goal. What is the goal? Well, you know, come together, you know, one voice, disabled people setting the agenda. And set, what is the agenda? Well, the five issues, whatever they are. And so the people know that this is what they're fighting for. Because all too often, you know, too many organisations have campaigned about one issue or another issue. And it, it peters out. The, the reality is if we want the government to make change, we need them to sit up and go, Jesus, these people mean business. They're, they're a large part of the community. They have votes. And I don't believe we're at that stage yet. We, we hear about when politicians are looking at the, the, the surveys, whatever, they, they look at particular age groups and demographics and they say, well, these people all vote. You know, th this particular age group is one of the groups we need to appease. We need to, when we're doing a budget, ensure that we, we have something for this particular group. They don't think that anymore about disabled people. And we need them to, I'm not saying we need them to fear us, but I would like a stage when we go into government buildings, they're not running out to, to just smile and say hi. You want them almost to be ducking in behind doors and saying, Jesus, here's this crowd in. They're still looking for those five issues. Or maybe it's, it'll be down to four. And then over a few years, it's down to three. But it needs to be, I keep going, as far as I'm concerned, and again, it's just my opinion, we need to create a central place, a forum, a voice, an agenda, and resource disabled people to move that forward. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 11 in conversations about activism and change. Make sure to listen to our other podcasts by visiting www.ilmi.ie to find out more about our work. Sign up for our e-bulletin by emailing info at ilmi.ie 
or follow us on Twitter at ILM Ireland or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ILM Ireland.